All right, hello and welcome back to Between the Liars. With me in the studio today, I have Marcelo Gonzalez. Hey, everyone. Austin Ivy. Hey, everybody. And uh, wait, hold on. Uh, this the man who asked for a theme song last week. <laughs> Our resident socialist, champion oh, of the great. people, Mister. Josh Hendricks. Say hello, Josh. Hello there. How are we all doing today? And I'm Ryan Goke. You know, last week we talked a lot about the minimum wage, and I got to thinking, it is really not fair that Josh is the only one who happens to have a theme song. And as the defender of capitalism, what better to represent me than defending the good old 9 to 5? The age-old question, what are the benefits of capitalism and what are the benefits of socialism? We're going to be discussing that at length today and hopefully get you some answers where you'll be able to decide which you think is the better. So, Josh, you want to kind of create some clarification on the differences between socialism and communism? I know that those kind of get confused a lot. Okay, they do get confused a lot because in some sense, I would argue... There's a very, at least in the high theory of what Marx originally suggested, not that much of a difference. Marx even spoke to this in the actual text of the Communist Manifesto of being like it's used by some others here and used by others here, but that there isn't really this one unifying call. Some theorists have looked at socialism as a phase between capitalism and communism And this is to kind of fit the dialect that Marx had uh, in how he viewed history, that there would be this oppression of the people. They would eventually get so tired, they would no longer take it. There would be this revolutionary phase, and then there would be this utopian phase. So that's how Marx envisioned the progression of history and theorized how it would play out. So they both argue towards this same ideal where workers own the means of production. That's the very technical phrase. Um, And that can be a bit confusing, but think about it in the same way that we say we would own the government. You know, that's the same value being expressed about the economy here. Uh, That in the same way, this big entity that makes a lot of decisions about our lives that tells us, you know, what we're going to be able to do for work, what houses we're going to be able to afford, this very powerful entity that enacts a lot of rules on our lives and forms and shapes a a lot of our choices is something we should have direct control over. This can take a couple of forms of like either, you know, people voting at their workplaces in form of Um, unions, but also in a more like radical imagination of the economy of like voting on how and what economic programs we want to have, you know, as a body of laborers and not even necessarily through an entity as a government, but to form a society that worked together uh, in a network of more mutual aid than trading commodities with each other Um, seeking from people in accordance to their ability and giving to people in accordance of their need. Rather than um, an economic system of justifying what each ought to have, 
you know, meeting the needs for everybody from the collective production of everybody because we all work to enact a better world. And there's different ways in Marxism that evaluates how uh, value is added in the same way capitalism does, like how much value do you determine a good should be sold from after so much labor has been done on it. But that is still working in, in the money paradigm, which is also um, something that Marx doesn't really work with or consider. Um, and it's not even like suggesting even just in a, like going back to a barter system, but just that we all have to work together and have a need of each other. And so that is going to be the operating um, force on society rather than viewing the need for um, like bosses and private ownership for companies to make an economy. So that is my long form, uh, but short form <laughs> definition of socialism. So in a, in a practical economic sense, capitalism is going to rely on supply and demand to regulate its market. Uh, socialism is going to rely a little bit more on the government regulating it typically. And it can stem from the idea, as I understood it, from the people uh, or the workers owning the means of production. But typically, in some sense, the government is going to be regulating that, whether it be through, we've seen it drift over into communism, where a single dictator runs the government, which then runs the economy. Or it seems like from Marx's perspective, it's going to be the people regulating the government more tightly, which then regulates the economy. Is that accurate, Josh? Well, so authoritarianism is authoritarianism is authoritarianism. Um, they'll each tell you something about themselves. They'll tell you some fancy way that they are rightfully in control and that they want to and know what is best for the people. They will tell you it is because they are the leaders of an Aryan race rightfully reclaiming their land in Germany. They will tell you it is because they have the will of the proletariat and they are seeking to abolish you know, and overthrow the czars. Um, whatever tale uh, imperial rules, divine kings and queens with God's blessings from the church to rule of the land, there's a lot of narratives that have been used to justify um, authoritarianism. And Marx didn't argue for authoritarianism because Marx is surprisingly quiet in his actual text on what a government in this post-capitalism uh, world should look like. Marx was a philosopher and a sociologist and economic, economist who criticized capitalism, but didn't much leave for what to do there, where, therefore afterwise, other than that, the private control, the undemocratic nature of the economy was at an odds and an antithesis to the democracy supposed by the liberal order. And so that there was this contradiction of the ideology of that it says you are free and that you can vote, but that the economy is planned and determined by a private group of entities. We talk about communism as a centralized planned economy. But I'm pretty sure Google is a very centralized and planned economy. Even if it's in its own private little state, we have these massive corporations who are very much so authoritarian in their control and our power over them and their decision making, you know, even if we can vote on our government. And so, I, you know, when we talk about like supply and the demand, that is sure how a society might come to determine what, you know, material goods it needs to produce but it doesn't much answer how we should distribute those material goods. And that's what socialism seeks to answer is a better way of what to do with the collective production. Um, 
humans work because we want access to material goods. Capitalists say, you know, we have to pay people dollars to work or they'll sit at home and be lazy and they won't work. But if you think about what money is, it, it, it is a means of accessing material goods. So people aren't motivated by money, they're motivated by access to material goods. So as long as the economic system has a system to deliver those material goods, you don't have to worry about paying people in money. Like if you can build everyone houses and feed everyone, you know, people will keep working to sustain that current quality of life they have. I mean, that's the nature of like humanity to always keep going forward. It's been our tale since we came out of the cave some 200,000 years ago to now 12,000 years ago to start playing crop to us talking here to each other and cross Zoom. So socialism is going to focus more on making sure that everyone within society's basic needs are met. Capitalism is going to try and allow people to kind of reach more of a self-actualization. I'm very interested in like what Marcelo and Austin's thoughts on kind of the ideals, values, and functions of these two might be. So for me, um, I like to think of the current society as like we're entering a social contract. You're a citizen in a country and the world in general, and you're supposed to have certain rights and responsibilities. Um, like Josh said, we live in a democratic society, at least I feel that we do. Um, so we vote for our leaders, at least some of us can. And we uh, try to like make things uh, better, you know, vote for who you believe is going to make things better for you. Um, we can do that in our current uh, economic system. Uh, there's really no social contract that, can, you know, uh, right now the, uh, there's so many big corporations that have such control over the things that we do and the things that we are part of. And there's really, again, a lack of control. And it's the synthesis to democracy that I feel like, you know, there should be something done about it. Um, that's on one hand. On the other, I do feel like the idea of a cushion or like a minimum needs uh, a met that socialism proposes is great. I would love to not have to choose between, you know, working or dying. I feel like that would be a great start. Um, and that's something that people have to struggle with every day in this country and in many others, um, maybe all others. I feel like a good social safety net propelled by the government would be something that would be great to have. I don't think that people should be, should have to demonstrate that they have some worth of society to not die. I don't, I don't think that that, that would be, uh, uh, and that's what the system that we live in right now. And I don't think it should be that way. I think Marcelo raises a good point in this discussion in that no society is purely capitalistic or socialistic. They usually tend to have some combination of the two. And Marcelo, it seems like you're pointing out one of the main flaws within the capitalistic structures that there are people who don't necessarily have their needs met, kind of like Josh was alluding to earlier, or they have to prove through something that they have worth. In capitalism, you prove that worth predominantly through your ability to contribute to society. What can you contribute to the goods and services exchange? If you can contribute something, therefore you will be more prosperous. What would you propose, Marcel, or do you have any preliminary thoughts on how the society can provide a better safety net? I think that there's definitely need to be a, a, a more involved role in government on what things uh, we can do to protect those who are most vulnerable in our society. We already have that, you know, we have Medicare, we have Medicaid, we have Social Security, we have a lot of these programs 
um, that while not perfect, uh, they still offer some kind of aid for those people who don't have enough to survive. So yes, more, more of that for sure. Um, I think there's been some talks about unionizing uh, in, in, a, in a more like holistic way big companies like big corporations are voting on unionizing parts of Amazon. And I think that's great because I do think that workers should have a say in what happens in their workplaces and should fight for their rights. Otherwise they're going to get trampled over. The problem with um, capitalist, the capitalist system is that you are always going to try to extract as much value as you can if you are the owner and if you are the employee, then you're going to try to get away with as much as you can in a way, right? It's always, it's always a struggle on where the, uh, the, the person who owns the production is trying to start, start as much value as possible from the worker without you know, outright killing them or keeping them in line with the government regulations. That's why we have those regulations on like how much time you can work in a week, uh, why kids cannot work. And we need, I, I do believe we need stronger regulations for that to ensure that, you know, and, and we've touched on this already before, like things like the living wage, things that, you know, that people should be able to work and live in a way that doesn't necessarily mean that if they are ever out of a job, they will just be left to die. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that's right. And I think some, it's something that happens here every day. So just, and Marcelo was just saying, we bounced back to the concept of people that aren't able to work at the moment, uh, dying and whatnot. Uh, what are your thoughts as far as just back to Marcelo or Josh? Uh, what are your thoughts on um, unemployment benefits? Where does that play into that? Because I don't know. It seems like we have at least some modicum of uh, counteracting force for that, with the government being able to confer some sort of unemployment benefits to people who aren't able to work. What are some thoughts on that? Yeah. So I actually I struggle with this sometimes too, because I do think that you know in a in in an ideal society you would have unlimited resources. So everyone could have everything. Um, obviously, we're not there yet. I do believe we'll get there uh, eventually, like Wally. But I, I think, in um, as much as we can, we should uh, protect people who are not able to provide for themselves and not rely on things like charity, for example, which I, I think it's unreliable, unreliable at best. I think unemployment is a great example of something that could be considered socialistic in nature. And it's something that, you know, if you're not working, the government is giving you something in exchange for nothing, even though, well, you pay your taxes and you, you still do regularly, I hope. Um, but I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I answered your question correctly, but I think that unemployment is something that, you know, we, we should consider. And uh, I know that there's been talks about like UBI and stuff like that to support people. No, you're good. And that's an interesting take as far as um, your take on charity there. I see where you're coming from, like a guaranteed or quote unquote guaranteed government benefit versus something that may not be available quite as widely being charity. That, I don't know. That's an interesting take. I hadn't thought about it quite that way. I think one of the things that's heralded as a, a strength of the capitalistic system that doesn't get met is the idea driving capitalism is that you have a free market that is going to be based off of needs being met. You provide the goods and services, therefore you find ways to market yourself. And in an ideal world for the capitalistic system, that is going to decrease the amount of people who are unemployed 
because the fact that someone makes a desirable product means that they're going to thrive. Therefore, they can continue to employ more people. The unfortunate reality is it doesn't always work that way. And there are people who then exist within that society who are on the unemployment line or they're having a very difficult time just getting by. And it does exasperate that tiered system, that power imbalance between them, because especially in a purely capitalistic society, it's going to value those who have the capital, who have the willpower, and who have the means and the knowledge to create something that is desirable and leaves everybody else behind. I think that when, when you talk about something like, you know, in the market of, you know, things, you have to create things that have value and that people want. But that also gets into a, another question, and I don't, don't want to deviate too much, but when you talk about things that actually generate value, that can mean many different things. Like, you know, we don't need... Uh, sugary drinks you know like that's not like that's it's something that makes you know millions of dollars every hour and it's not something that you know i don't i wouldn't die if i stopped you know drinking lemonade but it's something that has value and that that you know brands spend billions of dollars every year trying to market to people saying that hey you need this but that's not necessarily something that has like intrinsic value to society in general no, you're exactly right. I think that this highlights the idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I don't have to make something valuable. I have to convince people that it is valuable or that they need it. This is where sales comes in. Their job is not to sell a great product. Their job is to sell the product. And this is where you can get into another downfall where you can have marketing scams. You can have multi-level marketing schemes where people buy into this idea that they're going to multiply their money or they're going to do well and then they're preyed upon. And that's not always going to be the case. I don't have to create something. And I think um, you're probably getting at this from more of a critique angle, Marcelo, if I understand it correctly. I don't have to create something that's valuable. I just have to create something that society desires. And there is a distinct difference between the two. I absolutely agree. There's also a fundamental element of capitalism that's unsustainable and I think in its nature and how it produces value that capitalism values growth if your business maintains its form say it employs 50 people feeds 50 families and homes them and takes care of them for the whole lifetime and then goes on to take and take care of another 50 employees for the next generation in the capitalist system that is not as good as an investment as a business that will employ 51 people the next year. And so it puts this an almost intentional effort on the, you know, idea of competition as a driving force, as an iron sharpening iron. And while that can be like true in some sense of, you know, always trying to make the best product that get that gets pathologized down to the individual humans of where we start trying to filter people by that by trying to you know see them you know through that you know system of value of how it contributes to the economy of how an individual contributes to the economy and so one of i think the main like criticisms of like capitalism i have is what it does to the self concepts is it takes away the the humanness of an individual and instead produces this you know function of a system that produces materials and again and back on the idea of growth that also doesn't match the nature of the planet we live on 
infinite growth requires infinite resources and we live on a one singular planet and the environmental harms have done that we have harvested in the name of infinite growth probably a mass extinction that we're going to see play out in the next 50 to 60 years where we've decimated our oceans and our forests and we burn them down to have more cow pasture for the consumption of meat and while there are more organisms alive today than ever before on planet earth in terms of numbers there are at at the same time some of the lowest amount of total species of mount of where from our farming industries we have driven down biodiversity and created a singular impact on this um, on our economy or like you know on a planet and so there's this then push then still towards infinite growth i mean exxon mobil knew uh, about carbon's impacts on the environment in the uh, 70s and they started an advertisement campaign against it in the 80s to make sure that, you know, they started the whole climate change myth and it still goes on today. And the reality of it is probably in the next couple of decades, millions of people are going to die to climate change impacts. And while we talk about whether it's too late or not, when people say when we're talking about it's too late, they mean for global catastrophe, an apocalypse, and they don't even realize what they, you know, what has happened is it's already too late for a lot of regions and ecosystems. And that capitalist nature that Marcellus talked about to push and push and push for the production, you know, the fact that we had to pass child labor laws, in my opinion, could almost say enough about the system of capitalism as a critique. So this raises an important question that ties into the values of the two different systems, because I think that one of the competitions between socialism versus capitalism comes from the drive to make society the most profitable and provide the greatest societal good, which then pulls in the ideals and the values of what is going to be the greatest societal good. Is it going to be people's basic needs met, or is it going to be pushing them towards that self-actualization? Should we leave people behind at that expense, which brings in moral and ethical dilemmas? The untethered destruction of the environment, Josh, I think does highlight the important need to not have a society that is purely capitalistic because untethered capitalism is absolutely going to be damaging. There has to be a fine balance between the two. And I think where the main debate takes place from reasonable people is not going to be coming from purely capitalistic or purely socialistic is the answer. I don't think that anyone who understands these concepts is coming from that. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think that the main argument and the main goal between these types of discussions is to find out what is the appropriate balance that generates the greatest balance between the needs of the people and the needs of the society, letting them have their individualism, letting them excel, but also making sure that they don't do so at the expense of others. And I think that the main benefit within society will come when we keep adjusting that in order to achieve that. I think finding that balance is really difficult when when I consider it, and I'll I'll take a centrist position here, okay, sure. But in in both sides, I think on the on the capitalistic side, I feel like if you even if you give a little bit of leeway to a system that is trying to exploit people to generate profit, then it's going to find a way to do it. Um, and on, on the other side, if you know if we want to believe the claims that government is very corrupt and very inefficient, adding too much power to a system that is not working uh, might not also not be the best idea. So. Finding a balance is definitely hard. I also think, you know, because I've lived all of my life in a capitalistic society, it is very easy, well, fairly easy for me to, like, point out the flaws in it um, and the things that I've been living through. And, like, the fact that, and this goes to what, what Ryan just said, is that, you know, what generates value for society, like, what is 
quote unquote objectively good. When we invented refrigerators, it was good to like keep uh, food like cold, and so like that was I would say maybe a net good for society. And but that was also in the interests of the people who sold fridges. So everyone had a fridge now. But now, like, what happens when those interests deviate? You know, what happens when what's good for society is not what's good for the corporations or vice versa? You know, like what what happens when it, if I want to make money, then I should start like you know selling bottled water and like actively buying plots of land to like get the water out of them instead of you know leaving it where it probably should belong. That's definitely not an interest in our, of our planet or our society, but it's for profit or for corporations. So to me, Marcelo, I think you're hitting on kind of one of the key points of capitalism is that we as a society benefit when the capitalistic nature drives people to build a better mousetrap, so to speak. I create a refrigerator. My competitor makes a refrigerator. We are now in competition with one another. The people benefit from a holistic perspective rather than just looking at it from a jobs perspective. If we're looking at something as an improvement to the quality of their life, they benefit when they get that improvement for the lowest cost to them, which means that if I'm going off of a supply and demand driven market, the people are going to buy my product when I make it better or when I market it to them in a way that is more desirable. Why did the first humans start a fire at their cave site? Uh, that's to Ryan. Oh, yeah. Why did the first humans start a fire at their cave site? To stay warm. Why would they? Why, why would they want to stay warm? So they don't die. But there was no money. There was no currency. There was no competition. Why did they light that fire? So I feel like this is leading us down the path of like the bare basics of survival. Is that kind of what we're going for there, Josh? Is that the intuitiveness of human nature drives us to survive? Well, that we like having a better life. Like that's what I was. That's what I kind of argued in the in looking at. You, um, that we always want to improve. I mean, look at the look at look at human history. We spent two hundred thousand years, spent about hundred thousand years roaming around just in the continent of Africa, chasing down prey on two feet, running at them. Then we got nomadic and realized we could, you know, spread across more and more land. And then for another than seventy thousand years, we spread out. And thus, and then just twelve thousand short years ago, we plant the first crops. And there was no currency, there was no state, there was no capital, there was no democracy, there was whatever they had back then of their function of a society. But no matter the system of government, no matter why or what was going on, the nature of human is forward. And ever since that first seed was planted 12,000 years ago, that has become faster and faster and faster. And then we hit the Industrial Revolution and it went faster than we ever thought imaginable. And then we discovered the microprocessor and figured out we are probably near unlimited in our imagination of future technology and possibilities of automation to make machines, to drive us around, to produce our food, to harvest our crops. That we progress because that's what sets us apart that we reflect and critically think and learn from our experiences that we're not instinctual creatures that do the same thing over and over and over again, but that we found the better metal out of the ground, that we played with melting them together until we developed bronze, that it doesn't matter what forces the government or economy are putting on us. Human, humans will go forward because why else would we chart the map? 
why else would we chart the planet? Why else do we want to explore space? What do the world does space have to do for us? Why do we care about gravimetric waves of two, you know, black holes colliding? Because humans just want to know to go forward. And so I think we have that innovative drive, not because we compete against each other, we'll make a better refrigerator because having a better refrigerator is like being warm. It's nice. Humans go forward. I don't think it's, I I think we surrender too much of our own being to capitalism to say that it is capitalism that inspires us to innovate and to produce and to become better. Um, There are certain like, you know, definitely been governments that have like pushed down and try to repress progression. But if you look at humanity, you look at a species that wants to invent and desire. And in some ways, capitalism like limits that self-actualization. Like think of all of the musicians who can't just go jam their heart out inventing soul and music and life and culture because they got to work nine to five as a barista to pay their rent. And they can't be out there innovating music. And they're not innovating anything. They're just reproducing the same Starbucks cups over and over and over again. And then act of endless reproduction instead of making new music for our culture to adapt and evolve and learn new things. So there is some like self-actualization that capitalism does indeed very much so limit. So I think that it would be kind of ridiculous to limit it to just a sole thing driving human nature. You are exactly right, Josh. Innovation and other things can drive people forward. Within the society, though, we can see that the competition between people does accelerate how quickly something becomes as a commodity to people because it is driving people to compete against one another. Like the competition can have good and bad impacts on them, but it does impact them and it is a factor. I mean, there's also no... There's no necessity to compete in a way that destroys the other. Like, I mean, even if you think about it uh, in terms of like, you know, philosophy, like people are very much so competitive there for absolutely just bickering among fellow philosophers that very few other people are actually going to read. Uh, Debate tournaments love to compete for no real reward, but none of that has to like suppress or put down or or be connected to someone's ability to self-actualize rather that capitalism only grants the ability of those to self-actualize those who justle it whereas socialism would say we should all have the ability to self-actualize regardless of what we are able to contribute to the economic order because that self-actualization is more important than the economic order used to achieve it i think that'll go back to kind of the tension between them though in that we can want that but society doesn't function that way. And I'm, I'm sure that you would probably critique that as the, the base problem within capitalism. Is that, is that correct? That like within our society, we cannot function that way. We can't function the way that we want to. Well, there's a whole lot to be said about why society functions, the way it does, how ideology works, what ideology makes us do how it makes us into subjects are we actually subjects are we produced as Foucault would say or Foucault would say through uh, discourse are we constituted as subjects through interpolation there's a lot of you know different ways we can argue that you know society works in different frameworks but what I I think is is more so of the focus of you know of what do we want out of society 
at least from my theoretical framework, from my research and where I come from and my paradigm, we construct our social reality and can largely shape it into what we will. Um, I believe in an active agency of humanity over this social construction we exist in. So the divine rule of kings and queens once seemed like, like it would never end. Like they were the end-all be-all. There was no absolute imagination about it. And those who first speculated about the ability for people to rule themselves through democracy were heretics. They were lunatics. How could this be? But you need the God, you need the state, you need the king to tell you how to live your lives, to tell you what to do. And now people tell that same rhetoric about bosses and capitalists, that we need these economic planners and owners to structure our society to innovate, and that it's radical and impossible to imagine a humanity that can govern its economy the same way, uh, the, you know, govern its economy itself the same way we, it, govern, it governs its state itself. When we get into the application of socialism, right, the, the idea that the, the workers own the means to production, they get a say in that. What happens within the society, though, when we because like, I think right now as a society, we do not value the people in the arts as much as they should be. Like we don't we don't pay them as much as, as they should be paid. Right. Like they they enrich our lives and society does not place as high of a value on that. Right. Like Austin can't make a living playing saxophone at the moment because there's not an opening for it. So what happens, though, when we're focused on these societal decisions and the people are voting and then we're not actually allowing people to actualize themselves right now? I think you're arguing that capitalism prevents people in many ways, but I can see a similar issue arising with socialism where you're just outnumbered by the number of people and therefore we have the option to either regulate them which is where communism kind of sneaks in the back door right like someone decides i want this to happen i want these people to be able to do so therefore i have to pull it away from the people and then we kind of have the same problem what happens within the socialistic society though that that moves it from the idealistic perspective of you just get to be what you want and it provides them that opportunity to do so well and i promise you can google it This is a real Albert Einstein quote, verified statement. The whole point of socialism is to move humanity past the predatory phase. That the domination, that hegemony that existed in the tribal leadership of when we were individual families of probably hundreds of a couple hundreds roaming across the earth to the first settlements that There's always been a system of domination that assumes control and power and entity. And I think that's the fullness of the radical, the fullness of the radicalization of communism is that there can no longer be an acceptance of any such system of of domination, that the hierarchical order can't play out. So when we operate and so say from, you know, we might, you know, get outnumbered and they're going to, you know, to an, to an otherwise enable, you know, take from Peter to pay Paul, you know, that is the capitalist framework, though. That is only an, like an option that is acceptable in the world of capitalism, of scarcity, of artificial scarcity, of more, of more empty houses than homeless people, of more food than hungry people, of more medicine than sick people, that there is a, a way we have to allocate you know, some resources. Capitalism says if you want a guitar, you have to go buy it. Communism says there's probably someone who enjoys making guitars because guitars are cool. 
and there are people who enjoy making the guitars that are cool and there are enjoy pe- people who making who like making guitars and they like seeing their guitars get played and so someone comes and says hey i want to play a guitar and they go yes play this beautiful instrument i just made and that is the interaction and not uh yeah do you have 100, 180 bucks that we focus so much on the self and the conflict that it drives us into the framework of assuming that is our nature and how we only work. And that is the domination of capitalism as an ideology on humanity, that it has convinced us that we are unempathetic towards each other. So as someone who's trying to make their living, you know, just talking to people and studying human behavior and, you know, three out of the four of us here are kind of in that field and we we don't get paid as much as we would like to, obviously. Like, <laughs> I'm 100% on board with this concept of I get to do exactly what I love and I get to survive and I get to thrive. The problem that I have with this idea really just comes down to the execution. Like, I, I personally do not have an issue with this communal idea. The problem that I have is with the execution because one of two things tends to happen. A power vacuum opens because by human nature, someone comes in and we've seen this happen throughout history. Someone comes in and they take advantage of that power gap. And then we have communism shift in, which is, or authoritarianism or something comes in and messes up what would be considered the utopia. Or the other option, and I lost my train of thought on what the other option was. Uh, Uh, I'll just stick with my one for now. Um, I, I, so I guess my question then would be with socialism, I think the real problem getting traction is with the fact that we have a very difficult time operationalizing it. We have a very difficult time getting people on board. With capitalism, there is at least a standard and it does create certain inequalities. It does have its problems. It is operationalizable. I mean, and it's pretty easy for me to have like empirical evidence for that because we exist in it, right? I think that one of the problems is I'm not going to sit here and say, you must show me how and why socialism functions, but I haven't really heard how that gets operationalized other than, you know, just kind of, uh, I guess, like bippity boppity (laughs) booing people into changing who they are in order to make it work. Like, I I think it would be great. I just, I'm not seeing a a real way to get it to function, I guess. So let's start with here. Uh, There's a a lobster adoring philosopher by the name of Jordan Peterson. Um, He likes to talk about hierarchies a lot and how they always exist and they're in nature and they're everything. And one of the things he likes to point out is that the world is uh, in a crisis um, of meaning and that people are struggling with a sense of identity and, you know, you can follow Jordan Peterson down his old, you know, little rabbit hole and Godspeed to you. But enough of that. We'll give him the credence of the statement of he's right that the world is in a crisis of meaning. And that's because we shifted from modernism and essentialism to existentialism and postmodernism. And those are words we usually hear from people thrown around in propagandized ways and not given proper definitions. And there's far too much going on uh, for me to thoroughly unexplain them to. But if we can understand of that modernism offered a concrete world, a solid world where everything had a mappable truth and you could actually draw out uh, you know, a perfect map of the you know material world around you and postmodernism came in and broke our ability to imagine that and it means we're all having then this collective existential crisis of meaning of where once we were once able to chart out on a material real we're now in this nebulous uh, postmodern what I call in my own research papers postmodern noise of the 21st century and I think 
in one part, we see a resurgence, the resurgence of like nationalist politics and populism and reactionary politics as a reflection of that, because they offer like this grounding ability of identity in, you know, nationality, you know, ethnicity and this essentialist, you know, framework that like white nationalists take a group of, of like, you know, you don't have to, you know, worry about all the postmodern noise. You are found, you are whole here in this ideology. And one of the aspects of capitalism is that it alienates laborers from the benefits of their production. And that's another whole lot of things going on in that statement. But so uh, let's think about it in terms of, of a um, McDonald's hamburger. You know, you have a five cent bun, uh, a one cent lettuce, a one cent, you know, stuff. And the material cost of that you know, comes out to be, you know, let's say 25 cents and those little dollar burgers. It's probably even less than that. The worker slaps it together and then sells it to the customer for then a profit of 60, 70 cents. That worker gets paid 70, 25 an hour <laughs> and then sells a hundred of those burgers an hour. Um, now McDonald's at minimum wage actually is $10. So, you know, it would be getting paid at least $10 an hour, you know, credit to McDonald's, but they sell far more than $10 an hour of burgers than there are. So they're alienated from that. And so I think that furthers kind of hurts our kind of postmodern existence and not only the noise of it, but then we're removed from the benefits of our work. And then we commodify ourselves and feel this need to self-justify. And so I think we find better solutions and how we can get people on board with it by offering this realization that being human is enough and we can operate the government and economy from those basis while still understanding, you know, we're all different in ways. Let me pitch this out as like a, another hypothetical. And then like, I want to hear Josh's thoughts on this and then also Marcelo and Austin's. Let's place this scenario within our capitalistic structure. But let's apply what I would assume would be maybe like a legitimate application of the socialistic perspective. Josh, you had mentioned in the past and alluded to in this conversation that you would really be in favor of like workers being able to vote on their bosses and like whether or not they're doing a good job. So let's take this studio example. We aren't really providing any goods to people other than what they're interested in, right? But we are providing creative dialogue. We are providing entertainment and maybe even arguably some educational value to this, right? And so let's say that we got picked up and we started going big time and we were able to start a company. The capitalistic model would say that as we get more money because we have generated more quote unquote good, and I use quote unquote to acknowledge Marcelo's statement earlier that you know there might not actually be any good, but we've convinced people that this is a great thing to listen to. Now we have enough revenue to get an actual studio. We get to leave our jobs and we all get to meet in person and we just get paid to have these conversations. Like how great would that be? Capitalism, give me some slack here, made it happen, right? Now let's apply the socialistic perspective where we have now taken on employees because we need the building cleaned. We need things that would be considered less skillful, but more practical and equally necessary, right? If I apply the socialistic model, should those employees have the same say in executive decisions on content that we have, how we market ourselves, and where we take this studio information? Because I say no. And the reason being that with our creative genius coming together, I had this idea, you all came together and made this brainchild a reality. We are going to have the most stake in this because we are the ones who started it and made it happen. 
let me add the caveat that we don't make obscene salaries, right? Like it's not like we're the CEOs, billionaires. Let's just make us our everyday Joe who gets to exist living their dream job. Would you like the socialistic principle applied to our business in that instance where the employees get to say, Josh, I don't like your uh, hippie ideas. So goodbye. Like, would we want that to be given to them as the power? Um, so I think it would vary depending on institution to institution of like what type of model um, they would work out and also what it means to be someone's bosses. Would I say, would it be a good thing if everyone could come together and vote to fire someone from a place of work? Um, if there were laid out and like uh, kind of like a, a constitution um, of that place of work that laid out reasons and causes for termination, then yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time where you haven't had a coworker where you're some like where everyone's just like, you know what, you know, they're not, you know, pitching their effort around here to, to, you know, to enact this organization. But also think, you know, is like what it comes down, you know, to mean to be boss or like, so you would have a janitor, like the janitor might have opinions on what like goes on the show, but, you know, does the janitor have the opinion on um, how, what content will we say on this show? Well, do I have an opinion on how the janitor cleans the building? Yes. I'm expected to. So why can't the janitor have an opinion about what says on the show? I'm expecting to have an opinion on like what our accountants would be doing to make sure they're balancing the books. And the same goes back and forth. So the assumptions of like what we make about like, you know, as being a boss, but I think that also then like implies like those like different power dynamics, because I could also go, you know, no, I'm not particularly interested uh, of how the janitor uh, cleans the building because the janitor is a solid person and a professional and I trust them to do a good job. So they might, you know, we'll make that same assumption at each other because, you know, we're making it happen. You know, we're all here doing it. So why feel the need even to be critical of each other? Like it's happening. Um, so there's different ways to do that of not only controlling like what you know, we'll say a creative company would look like, you know, and then what a, you know, factory job might work like. Cause then you can also, this, you know, it doesn't just apply to content, but like to how long your hours are, how long the shifts are, how many shifts there's going to be, who's shift, you know, in charge of this, where we're going to lay out the machines, you know? So there's also like a lot of that where safety decisions on like a hazardous workplace, you know, what, you know, level of safety is acceptable for a job site? How risky of a job are we willing to accept? The boss can like, you know, say, hey, uh, we're taking this level job now. Again, OSHA does say you are allowed to refuse work you feel is unsafe. But still, realistically, you know, at the end of the day, if you do that, a couple of weeks later, your boss is going to come in and find out you've clocked in 15 minutes late and goodbye. And he's, you know, <laughs> uh, that's what happens, uh, you know, at different workplaces. So even if at some level, like people, singular people make decisions to fire people at companies every single day of the work, you know, every, every single day of the week, every, you know, every single day. Um, I would feel much better about being fired by the whole company than just one person, to, you know, just being honest, like, wouldn't that at least be like more conviction? Like, ah, oh, yeah, I really ain't supposed to be here anymore. <laughs> well, what if, Josh, what if that opens me up to where I could say, you know what, the purpose of the show when we started was to have very diverse ideas, but then I hire all people who agree with me and they're like, you know what, goodbye, Josh. Like, I think that's one of my criticisms that I would have then is this leads to corruption. It leads to me stacking things. Like there's like a lot of problems that can go along with that. Uh, Austin, there's, what you- there's ways for you to fire Josh without having to 
convert to socialism. True. <laughs> true. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, we've already got institutions or we should have institutions in place at our company, right? Where it's like, all right, someone can only be fired here. I can't fire Josh because he came in and I felt like he targeted me today, right? I can't come in or the company can't, right? Like there needs to be a fireable offense. This is why you have HR. Like it's very complex. But Austin, what are, <laughs> do you think that the socialistic model functions or works? Would you want the pure democratic idea? Um, I think that was an interesting point raised by Josh as far as kind of the scope of where the job lies. And I think I'd kind of piggyback off of that as far as creative direction goes. I don't think the janitor was hired for that purpose. So I'm not sure how much say they should have in that. But as far as like operation of the company, I think there's a certain degree. And a lot of this conversation, back to what we said earlier, does boil down to degree of um, sort of a balance to strike in the middle. Yes, employees should be able to, in a way, negotiate some aspect of the working condition. And I think also to a certain extent, bosses should not be 100% at the mercy of employees ganging up on them. Um, I think, like you said earlier, Ryan, that could lend itself toward corruption either way. And again, I think it's down to a balance between those two concepts. Marcelo, what do you think on this? So uh, first I'll say that if this was... In, in this case scenario, uh, we're living in a socialist society. So if anything, Josh wouldn't be the one getting fired. That's a great um, point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say that it, it's, I, I think that rules and regulations already exist in this system. Um, and it, I don't think, I don't see any reason why they would be removed. I mean, like you said, there's HR, there's, there's, there's stops in place right now that prevent people well, not always, but are supposed to prevent people from getting fired for no reason at all. And I would, you know, if, if the entire company fires me, that would be a massive L, but I would, I would probably, I would probably take it. Like, I think, and, and at some points too, you know, like it could also raise another question of like, if whatever, whatever you're saying, like, how are you directing the company? And this includes like creative direction is hurting the company so much that the entire company wants to fire you, then, you know, it's, it's, but you know, like, would I be, would I feel comfortable giving some of my power away so that my, my employees can fire me in exchange for a society where if I was the employee, I could have the same level of power for an employer. Yeah. I, yeah, I would like that. I think it's a trade-off. I mean, and if I, and if I keep getting fired as the employer, I'm not going to be an employer much longer. So I, it, what goes around comes around. Yeah. See, electing bosses is competition. See, we achieved it. <laughs> uh, I think that the part that I agree with with Josh and Marcelo is the specific part where a boss should not reach a level where they're hated by the entire company. At all instances, they're a tyrannical leader. I think that we have huge problems when you have CEOs who are making obscene amounts of money. This is where I would draw a key distinction between obscene amounts of money and being paid for what you're worth. And that is subjective and that is determined again uh, by who is in power and how they're paying themselves, right? Like as, as the four people who would start this hypothetical company, we get to set the salaries. We get to decide what we are worth. We get to decide what the employees are worth all the way down to paying them just the minimum wage. Where I would balance this is I don't think that the boss should be completely tethered or completely held in check by the employees. And here is why. Employers have to make unpopular decisions. And I'm not talking about firing someone for something they legitimately did wrong. I'm talking about in order to keep a company afloat, 
we go through a recession, there are people who have to be cut. Someone has to make that decision. I guarantee you the people who are being pinched by whatever the bad decision is or the unfortunate decision that has to be made is are not going to like the boss. So I think there needs to be a little bit of a level of latitude that allows the boss to make a difficult decision that is necessary while being checked so that they're not a tyrannical leader. But those difficult decisions are only happen because of capitalism. I mean, you mentioned it, a recession when capitalism can't keep itself in line and messes up. Um, that capitalism leads itself to crisis. Like, you know, only does someone need to be cut from a business because the company has to justify itself into existence by selling like less goods. Like if you were in a, you know, more socialized world, um, as we're doing um, this balance, then if sales were down, you all could just work fewer hours and make less goods to meet the current amount of demand. Because why produce more than needed? Why work unnecessarily? But why should anyone suffer just because the product's a little bit less popular this year? Like, there's a lot of bad decisions the overarching structure of capitalism forces businesses into of where harms are artificially made to uphold like the realms and systems of rules like because when you, you think about it like what is a recession well when everyone starts selling their stocks because they're going to get afraid they lose money and because everyone starts selling their stocks they all start losing money because all the asset value starts going down and when one part of the economy starts trending down everyone else gets scared so everyone starts pulling their their stocks out and for what for currency that isn't even really real because it has to obey a logic of an unreal system we've believed in because the loans of fake money we gave out to justify material houses you know couldn't be paid all of a sudden everyone started losing money and for that people had to lose their jobs like if we weren't operating on that system of capital and like using it as resource exchange and as the governing ideology there wouldn't be like crises like recessions because if people wanted less stuff you just make some less stuff because it's not being valued at its worth of production but as just what people are doing as an acting society i agree that that is a downfall of capitalism i guess my overarching question coming from this stems from the idea of what is the alternative because in a capitalistic society I am paid based off of my skill, I am paid off of what I can contribute, and therefore there is some sort of objective metric that can be subjective in instances, but there is a metric. In a socialistic society, everyone can just exist. And some people, based off of human nature, will contribute more, some will contribute less. Humans, without an incentive pushing them, tend to contribute less. What Josh has mentioned with like the guitar and the guitar player and the guitar maker to an extent that is true, that can exist. But there are also people who are not as motivated within society. And in a capitalistic society, those people are at least motivated to contribute enough to live. Now, do I think that they should die? No, which is why I'm not in favor of pure, unmitigated capitalism. But from the capitalistic perspective, we can have social nets that protect people but are designed to be a trampoline, not a pit. They can push people back on their feet. Does it do that all the time? No. But the question that I have then is what is the alternative? 
And this is one of the reasons that socialism um, or even communism that has similar tenets, I understand that it drifts into authoritarianism, but you have regulation. In capitalism, we allow the market to run itself, depending on the level of capitalism. And I understand like the, the theoretical ideology depends on to what extent that happens and how it's enforced or not. But in a, in a socialistic society, we cannot generate an increase, we can only pull people down because communism in its very nature requires people to have equal access to things. When people are not contributing because they're guaranteed that access, and this does happen, we run out of goods and services. And while I agree with the ideology that it is great for us to be able to just exist as we want to and to peacefully coexist, I don't see that ever playing out in a realistic standard because we don't have the way to push people. Why did they light the fire in the cave, Ryan? <laughs> so there's a difference between lighting the fire and surviving and actually being able to thrive. What you're doing is, Josh, but, you're you're expecting so, the person who lit the fire to also be free from polio and the different, you know, vaccines and a and a and an actual society. They're not exactly the same because they're not the same picture. We can but, survive, yes, and this is my exact point. Socialism drives people down and forces them back to their primitive natures. Capitalism does leave some people behind, but by comparison to the little man huddling over the fire, however long ago, it's not the same society where he's falling behind. But the whole metaphor to the person making the fire is the point of that humans will do what they need to survive. If everyone quits work like what in good conscience would drive society to what would effectively be collective suicide of no longer working and keeping the economy running? I mean, we would all die. Well, exactly. Like, and that's exactly my point. It's not sustainable. No, I mean, the fact that that exists is the motivation you're seeking for. But the fact that that is the reality, that is the that would occur, that that would be the inevitable future, that is the motivation. The reason you kept relighting the fire after the first time you lit the fire is because you had to keep it going. You had to always plant crops for next year's. I mean, the point of life is reproduction. Like we are, if, if, the, if we do have an instinctual biological human nature, it will compel us to like keep going um regardless of how we reward or delegate out systems of rewards on your contributions to that system like we want to do something i mean the reason that in, in prison like uh isolation is such a torture is because they lock them in a room with nothing to do and no human contact and it drives them you know mad because we're we want to do we want to act we want to be we want to be recognized we want to identify we want we're social animals and we construct a society and so like we'll we'll keep doing that we don't the motivation is the nice life the motivation is the access to the, all of the nice material things good because if we don't work all of those things go away so there does exist a motivation that inspiration to you know improve to keep having even nicer material things will keep us advancing like forward like the threat of starvation or living on the basic social net is not what drives people forward trying to be better than someone else is not what drives people forward. It drives people forward in some competitive access, but I also have met some people who are just really uncompetitive people. Like they just don't care. Like, I mean, they're really like, you know, that's not saying like they're bad at their, you know, work or they're not, un, you know, they're unskilled, but they don't care if they come in first and last. They enjoy what they're doing for the sake of what they're doing. That's not true for everyone, but we can't say there's just no motivation to work when keeping the society and what we have and progressing is motivation in of itself. 
And, and that's exactly what I, I would agree with, is that society will continue, but society will regress. When you tether people together so that their success is either all or nothing, the people that you mentioned who are not motivated, not competitive, are the same people who will pull this back. And what will happen is that the few individuals who are motivated to thrive will realize they are pulling the weight of society and they will dial it back to the bare minimum in order to not die off. They will not be motivated to expend all of their effort in order for people to continue to live off of what they are providing. And so while society will continue, society cannot sustain itself to the point that you would claim that they will continue to thrive. That's where I have the issue with the communal aspect, the social aspect, when you tether people together and guarantee those things, you, you, you have one of two options. Society regresses or a power comes into place to ensure that the standard stays up. One of the two. Like, there's not really another option because no, no so group of people is motivated enough to do that. That's just so pessimistic. They're, so think about they're in times of natural disaster. Or even we'll use, a, or rather, I will, I'll use a, an example used by Peter Kropkin and the Conquest of Bread. It talks about there are sailors who go out to sea and they see lifeboats or they see a sinking ship and they hop in their boats and they go out into the dangerous waves to their own peril, to their own status, not checking the identification or the bank statement or the insurance status of those they pull out of the water, but just seeing a fellow human in the water and then pulling them out because the need and status of being a human is enough to the rescue. I would argue it was better if I would argue if we could technologically cap the world at the comfort that every common American has, that the average American has, but give it to every single one in the world, but this would be the absolute peak of our technology, that in my opinion just might be worth it. Because even the relative, you know, economic poverty we live here in the United States is still far better than what literal billions experience around the earth. We talk about homelessness here in America, and we talk about poverty here in America, when there are over 2 billion people in this world who live on and off of less than two US dollars a day. Less than two US dollars a day is all of the economic resources dedicated to them for them to survive. We've spent more than that in the energy that's going to take it to recharge our laptops that we're having this Zoom call in to have that done of what those people will survive on in a day. So in some sense, like it's not even just the unemployed, like here in America, it's still the hundreds of thousands of people that will die every year of waste of food while we throw away half of our produce in America because it won't sell well enough and we won't introduce it to the economy because it will deflate the value of the goods of the economy. So we create artificial scarcity to maintain profits. It's deeply anti-humanist. We gain that motivation and creation. We advancement, that desire, that need, because part of the shift to socialism, part of the reason that people use communism, like Adolf Hitler used socialism in his national socialist, you know, movement as, you know, Joseph Stalin and Lenin called themselves communists, but whatever they were doing, they were justifying that need of authoritarianism. And I would argue personally that capitalism is doing a no to the same as it makes an argument about human nature and a need for us to be controlled and governed and motivated by some authority into work to produce society. And it's the truest radical criticism of communism that 
it is not just a shift of the way we run the economy needed. It's an ideological shift of how we evaluate what it means to be human and how we give worth to ourselves and our fellow humans. Yeah, as Socialist candidate uh, Eugene V. Dubs here in America said, while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. You, Ryan, you say socialism tethers us together. And I say we are already tethered together and capitalism forces us to deny that tether. I don't think it's that it denies the tether. I think that in order for a society to progress beyond the animalistic natures of the basic needs of survival, you can't rely on the communal aspect. The example you gave of the person at sea strips people down to the bare survivalistic element. And in that instance, yes, that's fine. The person is drowning, they're pulled, and they're not going to be thinking about how much that person makes or what value they contribute to society. What we can't then do is take the same idea that a crisis mode that brings people together, strips people down to survival instincts, is sustainable throughout society and can at the same time simultaneously allow people to thrive to the same level that you would have us believe that they do. I do think that there is an important element within society in which we are tethered together. We are interdependent on each other. The economy itself is a great example of that. I just do not see how it is possible for people to be able to realistically, in real-world terms, take on a socialistic idea without those types of regulations and still achieve the same level of societal success. I guess it all depends on what you call success. That is fair. Um, like like what, what, it, what it means for you to be, for society to be successful. Because in the way that we're living right now, I mean, you're right, some of us excel some of us excel by oppressing other people, either directly or indirectly. And so there's like winners and there's losers. And I guess in, in that way, if you're if you're a winner, uh, if you're among the winners, then I think you are excelling and you are pushing forward. But at the same time, you're leaving a lot of people on the way, by the wayside. And I, I don't know if I, if everyone would call that. If you were in the losers, I don't I don't know if you would call that a, a system that works. I agree. Um, I I don't think that that is an example of success within society. Again, I think that's where we can kind of come back around and agree around the idea that pure untethered capitalism is not the way to go. It exasperates those divides within society. I really don't think that the socialistic aspect does that um, any better. I think that the criticisms of capitalism does not necessarily equal the strengths of socialism. I think that the socialism does fill some gaps, which is why I think that there's a good need for the blend between them. But I don't think that the socialism is going to actually fix that issue. I think those will still exist. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with our hot takes to wrap up this segment. That was the wrong, that was the wrong one. Hold, please. Oh, well, then. You should just leave that taken. I will. We'll, we'll, add the, we'll, we'll, we'll have Josh go right after the horn, and then that way it just really gives him up. <laughs> All right, and we are back with our hot takes. I'll kick it over to Austin to start us off. All right, so I guess I'll kick off the hot takes for today. So it seems, you know, as per how we kicked off this conversation, we all agree that neither system, capitalism or socialism, is wholly sufficient in itself to build a successful society. But where we've diverged on some of our points here is what constitutes a successful society. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that parts of what we heard is some of the positions that were shared toward the end of this conversation were that if we could have every person on the planet living at the same level as even an American in poverty today, 
that would be success in a certain degree. While I think on its face, that sounds pretty nice because again, compared to where most people on the planet are today, Americans living in poverty are living fairly extravagantly by comparison. I do think as a species, we need to move forward. We need to continue to innovate. We need to continue to move forward. And I'm not sure that socialism or leaning more toward a socialist framework is going to drive some of that. It seems to me that capitalism has a tendency to harness some of the worst aspects of human nature, self-service and um, self-interest, but it harnesses them for the good of providing a service for another person or for society at large. I think leaning towards taking the worst parts of humanity and making them have utility for other people would be more advantageous than wholly relying on the best parts of humanity to always manifest themselves. What it seems for a pure socialist society to function is you have to rely on every person being at their best all the time. And as we can see from human nature throughout the entire course of history, I don't think that's a very safe bet. There are definitely critiques that apply to both systems, but as we've shared today, we're all on the same page. There's a certain mix between these two systems that would take effect. And that's what we see in the US. We have certain capitalistic aspects for our economy, but we also have a social safety net. The real question is to what degree? And um, I think that's where we find ourselves. I'm going to go full dystopian here uh, because it is a hot takes. But I have read and watched too many shows and, and books and TV series where it, in our future, we become so technologically advanced that we achieve some sort of, we move past resource scarcity. But that's not because everyone has what they need. It's either because those who don't are ignored or they simply do not exist anymore. Um, I brought the example of one of my favorite movies, Wally, <laughs> at the beginning of the show. And in Wally, you know, you don't do anything at all because robots do everything for you. And there's like everyone is given according to their own needs. Like if I want a soda, then the robot will give me a soda and, and that'll be that. And you could call that, I guess, in a way, a, a perfect society. But, you know, that's about like, you know, 500 people out of the entire planet because everybody else is dead. I feel like eventually when we automate every single aspect of our lives that we don't want to do, we'll achieve a place where everyone that can have what they want will get what they want. And we can all be musicians or we can all be, you know, we can all run our own little podcasts and everything. But I think the problem is that at that point, capitalism somehow will have run its course and it will be paid for with the with the price of many, many lives. And it still is right now. So I think that in my, in my ideal world, we would like to prevent that for sure. And, you know, I hate to say this, but, uh, you know, I agree. I think maybe transitioning softly to like market socialism would probably be an easier sell in today's society. I don't know. I'm just, I feel very pessimistic of the way things are going right now. And that in a few hundred years, you will have the elite class have everything like they have now. And they'll be like, well, you know, we did it. You know, we, we survived, but at what cost? I'll start by saying that I absolutely agree with the general sentiments of Josh and Marcelo. The ideal world is certainly not the one we live in. The ideal world would be where people get to do what they love. They get to live off of what they make doing what they love. And they're not based off of what they can contribute to society. Where I deviate from that agreement is on how this actually plays out. I don't think that increasing the levels of socialistic economic principles allows humanity to thrive. 
I'll stand by my statement that I made earlier that society will inevitably regress because not everyone, as Austin mentioned earlier, not every person in society is equally motivated. Not every member within society is equally equipped for all things. And therefore, you will have a small number of people, typically the people who are the most motivated, carrying the weight of the rest. I think the best of both worlds is going to be where we find a way to increase the good within society and reduce the bad. I'm not in favor of the people who run corrupt companies who take advantage of other people. Absolutely not. But I also don't think that allowing the people to be able to have an equal say on every single thing that they're not necessarily equipped to be able to have an intelligent say on is going to be the best way to run things either. Different people, different skills, equally important, different motivation means those people are not going to provide the same good to that company or to that society. There's kind of three main things that I would talk about here. The first is the difference between thriving and surviving. The socialistic aspect is going to drive people down back to their more survivalistic needs. Uh, this would lead to the second thing, which is that you, you have to have a crisis or a need in order to strip people down to the point where they're not going to try to excel. Going off of Marcelo's example in Wally, they left the ship. There was something greater out there. Like it, it was not the epitome of society for them to stay there. And given that, you're left with two options. Society regresses or society is enforced, which is why we often see socialism making way to communism, because someone comes through with an authoritarian rule trying to enforce their vision of the utopia. Every time you apply the human factor into socialism, we get a problem. And the last thing that I would add to this on my hot take is that different people with different motivations means that, again, there's only one way to make sure that everyone has the equal standard of living. You can drag it down. That's, that's it. You cannot have the same level of thriving within society without having something in order to encourage them to continue to produce goods so society can continue. Now, I will hand it over to Josh. It's either socialism or barbarism. And Marcelo makes a good point that was expressed in a book called Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher, who in this book argues that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. He does this through a media review looking at post-apocalyptic literature and showing how that even in you know, discourses of when the world breaks down, when the world ends in the post-apocalypse, the economic system still presented in our fiction and our media is still a capitalistic one because our social imagination is so wrapped up of what it means to be and what, what it means to be capitalist. And to uh, further make this a more complicated hot take, as Ryan talked about how someone always has to come along and do, you know, or, or someone in a socialist system always ends up coming along and, you know, make someone do culture. And I argue that there's already someone doing that. And it's going to be a really obscure reference to the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek. And the name of that person is the big other. And so what we have to understand about the nature of ideology, not capitalism or communism, about the nature of ideology as it provides marching orders for how it makes concrete individuals into subjects that act. 
that capitalism suggests a grammar and a text for how we consider ourselves as humans to make us act, to interpolate us into. And that is always going to be a part of it. And that is done through the narratives political ideologies tell you about them. As um, another philosopher by the name of Louis Althusser noted, ideology never says I am ideological. It always exists in that subtext, and it is the true study of criticism of ideological scholars to understand those of how ideology provides those marching orders to enact a society. And capitalism does that by putting us in that stasis of crisis of work or starve or be at the bare minimum. Whereas if we turn into a socialist uh, framework here, then we understand that that basis is built on the collective of vulnerability and shared identity. We are no longer built and identified by what we can offer from each other, but in how we are vulnerable and what we can offer and from what we need from each other, the need to be social. I don't need someone to come along and make fancy technologies. The debate between capitalism and communism is more than about how do we justify our systems of economics, but how do we progress the species moving forwards? It's a debate between democracy and monarchism. Is it okay for there to be literal monarchs of private companies that are not publicly traded, passed down air to air to air, that control so much of our society? I would argue that is always going to be a no. We should always seek to have a more democratic nature and that we should always be resistant to messages that call into doubt how much we depend on each other because the predatory nature that capitalism feeds on and takes advantage of isn't something that as austin stated you know is promoted into made into something is utilized but is fundamentally promoted as it is good to be predatory as a capitalist business because the goal is to make money if you must destroy the environment to make money it is fine if you must ignore the mask mandate and let your patrons die to the coronavirus it's fine you have to make money. Texas is open and back for business in full, as Governor Abbott said. And we operate, we do something bad to the human when that happens. And we can displace a lot of the harms, and we've displaced a lot of the climate change harms because we won't see them happening. We displace the starvation and lack of medicine, you know, around the world because we don't see them happen. But there's very soon going to be a whole lot of people that are going to die from climate change. And as Marcel also pointed out, a whole lot of unemployed people for from automation and capitalism system is going to be that those people displaced and unemployed are disposable because they aren't usable in the production of value. Because as was also theorized well back by um, communists and was reflected as what we saw in the Vermeer Republic, fascism is neoliberalism in decline. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Join us next time. See you then.